And you're listening to WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Forum. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the first program in our new series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging our citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about the civic mission of public education. We'll discuss whether inequities in public education and the failure of public schools to prepare all children for citizenship contribute to political inequality. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host today for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us on the phone is Mira Levinson. Mira is the professor of education at Harvard Graduate School of Education. She previously spent eight years as a teacher in the Atlanta and Boston public schools. Her 2012 book, No Citizen Left Behind, has been called a forthright defense of schools as institutions for teaching about democracy and justice by Education Week blog. Welcome, Mira. Thank you very much, Anne. I'm really excited to be here. And also joining us by phone today is Bill Richards. Bill is a Maine educator with diverse experience in Maine public education. He currently serves as interim superintendent of the Rangeley Lake Regional Schools. He formerly formerly served as associate commissioner of instruction during the McKernan administration. He's been the superintendent of schools in a number of school districts and served as a school board member also playing every role possible in Maine public education. Welcome, Bill. Good morning. Thank you. So it's Inauguration Day, and uh, if you're tuning in today, you're taking a break from the festivities or looking for something else to talk about. Um, But we're not talking about the 2016 election today, not about who voted, what they knew, or what they thought they knew. We're here today to talk about public education Are America's schools preparing our young people to assume their civic responsibility? Are some school systems doing a better job than others? Do those differences lead to unequal participation in government, to unequal representation? We'll explore these questions and more on our show today. Mira, let me put it to you first. What is the history of universal public education in America, and how is it linked to universal suffrage and ideals about democracy? That's a great place to start. Um, uh, So public schools in the United States were created uh, because uh, the, the founders of America um, decided that we needed a new kind of citizen in order to uh, create uh, and sustain the, uh, the new civic experiment that was the United States. And so uh, they were chartered in towns across the country, which at that point, of course, were the 13 original states, but you know, then soon spread. Uh, in order, and, and their mission was very explicitly in order to educate citizens uh, who uh, were explicitly different from, say, the old world citizens, say, in Europe uh, under monarchs and so forth. And this was the idea was that uh, schools in the United States were going to educate uh, people who could participate, who could be civic leaders and uh, fulfill civic responsibilities. Uh, in this young country. Obviously, it was not uh, related to universal suffrage at the time of the founding, since there was not universal suffrage at that point. Um, But uh, there was the idea that we needed, in fact, those who formally had the vote, uh, say, uh, white men who were property owners, um, but also 
uh, other supporters, especially women, were seen as being also essential in this uh, civic movement because they were sort of uh, fostering the civic heart at home and preparing good citizens uh, and good voters, and therefore they actually had access to education. Uh, you know, when we talk about African Americans, that then becomes a somewhat different story. But for centuries, uh, school, public schools in America were specifically justified on the grounds of creating uh, good citizens. Uh, Bill, why do you want to add to that? And let's ask another question. What do you think citizens need to learn to be effective in civics life? In civic life, is it just civics and social studies and history per se, or is it a good education more broadly defined? Go ahead, Bill. I think uh, good over good education uh, defined, uh, you know, in a very broad way. Uh, one of the things that I've always uh, have been concerned about is uh, in public education is the isolation of coursework, whether it's in high school, even in elementary school. Um, and certainly uh, good humanities courses where there's uh, an interdisciplinary experience is, is very powerful and it's a good way to teach. Not only, only is it a good way to teach, but it's a good way to learn about the intricacies as well as the uh, the interconnectedness of phenomena in our, in our in our world. So, um, so good good public education is is absolutely necessary, I believe, for good civics education and for uh, the future of our country. And, and out of that comes knowledge, skills, attitudes, and behaviors that are very important for each citizen as they uh, take part in the society. Mary, you, you yeah, can I add on to that for a second? Sure um, thing. You know, when I was talking, say, about public schools being founded in the United States for civic purposes, that was thought of very broadly, right? So there, one of the civic ideals in the Young Republic was the yeoman farmer. So uh, the farmer who was responsible at home, who modeled uh, sort of responsible behavior and stewardship of the land, of his family, of his community. And so, you know, things like learning agriculture um, and home economics and so forth, was considered, in fact, to be an important part of, uh, in fact, growing up to be a good citizen. And similarly today, uh, when we think about schools as engines for high-quality civic education and, and high-quality civics uh, and civic engagement, ideally, that is goes far beyond uh, specifically the study of civic citizenship, government, social studies, history, et cetera. It is, it's about... Uh, the whole person because it's about the whole society. I mean, it's interesting. I have sometimes told a story. I grew up in Wisconsin, and I at a museum one time I saw a 19th century graduation exam from the 8th grade, and it had um, everything in it about economic markets. These, You know, it's a farm community, price arbitrage, um, exchange rates. It was a really hard test, an 8th grade test that I could not have passed um, and so what you're saying is, you know, civics life was defined broadly to be participation not only in voting and government, but in economic life as well. Exactly, yes. And having knowledge of all of those realms of life. I mean, if we think today, even if you are just thinking about voting or engaging in, you know, public deliberation, right, we need to understand science, we need to understand economics, we need to understand foreign policy, right? I mean, the, the demands that are put on us uh, go far beyond an understanding merely, say, of, you know, how a bill becomes a law. Bill, you wanted you know, to jump know, in I, there. I think this makes a good case for, um, you know, uh, uh, children as they, as they learn, uh, and they learn, uh, that they learn the historical context for all of this. I'm reading Hamilton right now, and that was at a very disruptive time, you know, from the Revolution on, and, and in terms of the Articles of Confederation and framing the, the Constitution, that was not a, an easy sell by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, I think it's important to uh, for our students and our, for our young people to understand this evolution and how it is very disruptive from time to time, uh, interspersed with wars and all kinds of things, um, and, 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 and to prevail, uh, hopefully, in a very successful way uh, compared to the rest of the world is a really important point, I think, that sometimes uh, I don't think that children necessarily uh, have that understanding. Mm -hmm. we, we know from the League of Women Voters' perspective that more affluent, better educated citizens tend to vote more reliably. You know, that's over the long range, not in any particular election. But I'm wondering if you think disparities 
in this kind of instruction play a role in that? Mira, you've written about the civic empowerment gap, and what does that mean? Uh, yeah, thank you for asking. Um, so the, the civic empowerment gap is uh, the term that I place on a phenomenon that political scientists have known about for decades, um, and in fact elected officials have known about, uh, because then they target prospective voters accordingly, that Yes, people who are better educated, who have uh, more income, higher levels of wealth, um, in uh, in some cases who are white or African American as opposed to Hispanic or Asian, are much, much more likely to um, be civically engaged than uh, those who have uh, lower levels of education, lower uh, levels of income. And also, frankly, and here we now have a discussion, uh, we take African-Americans out of the picture, really, we're talking about whites, much, much higher uh, levels of political and civic power in the United States um, if you are white and well-educated and wealthy. Um, And so part of the point is to say, you know, this is not a democratic state of affairs, right? But one of the many reasons for the civic empowerment gap is that also we have um, a civic education gap where uh, students who are already living in more empowered communities and who are coming from more empowered families also tend to get a much more empowering civic education than do um, children coming from uh, marginalized communities, marginalized families, et cetera. And so we end up uh, having this uh, sort of cycle and this exacerbation of uh, undemocratic or anti-democratic differences in the amount of voice and um, political and civic power that people have. Do you want to add to that, Bill? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I think Mira's right on target. I've had, uh, from some personal experiences, when I was a doctoral student in, in Massachusetts, I did some work in Braintree, uh, Newton, and also in Chelsea, Massachusetts, and in Stoneville, Massachusetts. And then here in Maine, um, you have a school system. That's where I started my career. And I've worked in uh, Washington County. And uh, there's, such, there's such an incredible educational disparity uh, among those various communities. And the differences that, and the empowerment differences that uh, Mary is, is, uh, has pointed out is very evident in those, in those communities. It's just, uh, it's, uh, and a lot of that has to do with economic support and, well, economic support uh, primarily. But, but that's a real issue. And, and, and I see it every day. And I'm in a, Kind of a remote, although it's a resort a town uh, in in Maine now, and I, I even see it here uh, to some degree. Bill, why? What do you think are the sources of those disparities in Maine? Some of us are reading um, Catherine Kramer's book, The Politics of Resentment, and some of the rural voices that she reflects in that book really take issue with the school funding formula in Wisconsin. How much is the school funding formula in Maine a problem for rural voters in Maine? We are uh, tuned to the Democracy Forum this morning on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is the civic mission of public education, Our guests this morning are Mira Levinson, Professor of Education at Harvard Graduate School of Education, and Bill Richards, a Maine educator and former Associate Commissioner of Instruction in Maine. We were talking about the disparities in public education in Maine, um, the differences between rich districts and and poor districts, the difference between urban districts and rural districts, and the way that disparities in the quality of education that children access relate to their ability to play a strong role as citizens. So with that, Bill, I think you were ready to make a comment. Go ahead. Am I speaking? Yes, you are. You're on your air, back oh, okay. on your air. Go ahead. So, uh, in summary, I, I think there are significant districts, districts and the disparity is evident. Uh, and as a result of that, the social cultural issues related to education uh, are different, and uh, they they are significant. And I, I've and I've seen it uh, repeatedly, and you know, throughout my career. So, in in rich districts in Maine, you know, high property taxes and high property values can help make up for deficiencies in state funding to schools. 
in poor and rural districts or districts where property values are falling, the school funding formula may leave those communities high and dry. Do you see that as a problem in Maine, Bill? Well, they don't leave them high and dry, but they. But again, the funding has never been uh, the optimal funding, as I understand it, was fifty-five percent, and it has never got to that point. It's around forty-seven percent, I believe. Uh, and and then then the amount of money that is distributed among those various communities is is uh, uh, what happens is it, it's it's different in. The difference between the wealthy communities and the less wealthy communities is the disparity is made up for in the wealthy communities by local property taxes, uh, even uh, when uh, you know without uh, without a lot of uh, state funding. So, uh, and again, you know, I I was I was uh, chairman of the uh, school committee in Cumberland, Maine. We would have a budget hearing, and a lot of people would come out, and they would come out as advocates for the advocates for the you know the school budget and that isn't necessarily the case in other parts of the state where the economy is not as uh is not as wealthy and the support isn't there and so uh people vote but they don't vote for uh increasing the uh the school budget as they as as compared to maybe Cumberland, New Yarmouth or Scarborough some kind of communities. I mean that's an excellent segue to my next set of questions. I mean, do all of the diverse political cultures and values in the U.S. sort of agree on the value of public education? There's always been a little bit of a strain of anti-intellectualism in American life. How does that affect communities' commitment to high-quality education and are our communities generally equally committed to providing that for their, for their kids? Mira? So I'm not really sure how you would measure uh, the sort of level of a commitment that a community has as a whole to education. I have to say that in my eight years as a teacher and now, uh, I don't know, nine or ten years, uh, say, as an education professor, I have never, ever met uh, a parent or a teacher uh, or, you know, anybody uh, who has any interest in children whatsoever who has said, oh, yeah, I don't care about education or I don't think it's important, right? I mean, every parent I've ever met, and in fact, every child I have met, believes that education is crucial for their future. I think there are a few differences in terms of how that gets, uh, how that plays out. Uh, One is that, you know, one difference between, say, poor districts and wealthy districts is that even if the two districts were... um, willing to pay the exact same percentage of their income or their property taxes, right, you know, um, towards schools. Mm-hmm. In a poor district where you have, uh, say, lower property uh, uh, values, you end up getting less money uh, mm-hmm. than you do from in a district that has higher property values. And so one of the challenges is that when you are in a poor community, uh, actually many of those communities sort of overtax themselves as compared to the wealthier communities. They are, they are paying a greater percentage um, uh, of their property value uh, into schools, and still they are getting less for it. And that can end up... Uh, so, you know, that's one thing that's important. I think a second thing to realize is that also there may be a much higher uh, degree of suspicion about whether or not uh, the schools are giving uh, their kids what they need. And so when you have, and this is, I think, also a feature of the civic empowerment gap, uh, when you have a relationship that is trusting and that's mutually trusting among public officials, public school educators, school board members, et cetera, and the families who are being served, then you get this virtuous cycle, right? Um, and But when you have mutually suspicious relationships where families don't trust that teachers, school board members, the superintendent, whatever, has their own children's best interests in mind, and where the educators and the policymakers don't trust the families for having their own children's best interests in mind or for really understanding how uh, the school system should work, then you can get into a vicious cycle where, unfortunately, everybody, in fact, wants what's best for kids, but you don't end up with what's best for children in those communities. That seems like a really important point. Do you recognize that, Bill? 
Can I just add to that a little bit? Please do. Uh, if you look at the disparity in tax dollars and tax, uh, you know, the availability of support and, you know, in a comparative way between poor and, and wealthier communities, that tax dollar uh, in both of those communities is distributed, as Mary just pointed out, and um, in, in, in a broad way, and it's not only has to take care of the school issues, but also the municipal issues, et cetera. So uh, it becomes much more of a burden uh, and on those poor communities to you know, raise the, the amount of dollars necessary to provide a quality education. So from the get-go, it's a real challenge uh, that might not exist uh, in other communities where no, they not only meet the municipal and their municipal expenditures, but also they can they can complement that with additional dollars for education. And, and there's always in the funding formula we have, or the way we build our budgets, there's a provision in uh, one of the articles where you can raise additional dollars. Well, in poor communities, you very seldom see uh, minimal additional dollars are added to education, but in the more wealthy communities, additional local dollars are raised uh, accordingly. So that's a, that disparity is really significant, especially in this state. And Bill, what about the the, tr- the trust gap that Mira describes, this um, idea that schools are us versus schools are them? Do we, I mean, does that seem like a difference among school districts in Maine? I think there might be some of that, but I, don't, I haven't seen that as prevalent. Uh, uh, I haven't seen that as prevalent in, in Maine, but mm-hmm. most of my Time in Maine has been on the, along the, you know, the greater Portland area on the coast, too. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if I could say that. I, I think there's, there's certainly some of it. My first superintendency was in Rough of Mexico, and they, they made, uh, which was a mill town, which made, uh, it made, uh, you had to, you had to certainly defend uh, your position with respect to ask, asking for additional dollars, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Miro, what, what do you think, I mean, whose responsibility is it to, fix this? And why does the burden for fixing this civic empowerment gap, or does it even fall mostly on public schools? I don't think it falls... Oh, sorry, was that a question for Bill? Yeah, no, go ahead, Mira, and then Bill next. Go ahead, Mira. Okay, sorry. Um, uh, I don't think it falls mostly on public schools, but, I, I mean, or it shouldn't fall mostly on public schools. And on the other hand, uh, the reasons that public schools end up assuming so many burdens is that they are really the only institution we have left that um, serves the vast majority of Americans. Uh, You know, currently in the country as a whole, about 90% of kids attend public schools. Uh, My guess is that in Maine it's similar. Um, And we don't have any other institutions that uh, public institutions that reach, uh, you know, 90% of American citizens and residents. And so, therefore, um, anything that we want to accomplish as a nation as a whole or as a state as a whole or as a community, we end up nowadays channeling through public schools because it's the one point at which we know we can touch uh, virtually every family and every child um, who's living there. Uh, and it's also the case, I think, that schools um, have a particularly effective role to play because they themselves uh, constitute civic communities. They model, uh, and this is one of the reasons, again, that public schools were set up uh, the way they were, is that they were supposed to model a diverse array of people coming together working together, learning together, accomplishing things together outside of the boundary lines of family, of religion, of race, of class. Race was one of the dividing lines in schools uh, in earlier eras and Mm -hmm. continues uh, in a de facto way to be a dividing line today. But the idea is that you bring people together from all around the community to learn and work together. Um, And that's a pretty special role as well, and where schools can then help construct empowering civic communities where everybody plays a role and where we recognize the value uh, that can be achieved in diverse groups of people working together and how much we can achieve together that we can't achieve separately. That's a really wonderful thing to be able to demonstrate and learn together and then enact in the wider world. So, Bill, I want to give you a chance to 
um, add on to that, but it also raises a question in my mind as the incoming um, federal administration begins to take shape and um, the nominee for the head of the U.S. Department of Education is a well-known supporter of charter schools. How does that fit into the model that Mira just described of our public schools being um, a place to test out a diverse and inclusive community conversation? Bill? Well, I think, uh, you know, public schools do provide that um, that that opportunity. Uh, I think <laughs> this is interesting. I don't know too much about the uh, you know the, the potential new secretary, but um, one of the things in, in, in comparing charter schools and private schools to public schools, um, public schools don't have options with with respect to the needs of all students. They have to provide them. That isn't the case for charter schools, and that's not the case for uh, private schools. Uh, just give me an example. My budget that was just uh, uh, informed the other day that I've got four special needs children that are coming in uh, to, this, to this district. It's a very small district that's going to uh, put our budget over the top, and it's going to cost for one of those students $100,000. So that is an extreme burden. That's a burden, uh, or it's a cost that, uh, by law, we have to meet. Uh, and those children should have opportunities to learn where they can. But that isn't a, uh, that isn't necessarily that's not uh, a burden that uh, some of the other options uh, allow for in this country. So that disparity is not necessarily acknowledged as much as it, perhaps it should be, and um, and it does uh, it does become an issue of how the resources are distributed in a district and so some things have to go and some things have to stay and, and actually I'm dealing with that right now as we speak uh, building the budget here in Rangeley, Maine um, so, so do you, do you want you to know, comment? And, and just one other, one yeah, other little point you know uh, in, in terms of budgets and raising money locally people understand uh, snow removal but buying an, an extra, I'm going to use this as an example, but, but buying an extra set of books isn't necessarily, uh, you know, as, as immediate as the snow removal. So people can make some judgment about that, even though those books might uh, have an impact upon those children and this technology today, not necessarily books uh, for the future. Uh, go ahead, Mira, jump in. And um, I'm thinking, too, about the question, like, uh, you know, what responsibility do we all have to equalize the pressures of school districts that are financially disadvantaged? So go ahead, Mira. That's a good question. Um, so the United States has a crazy system of school funding uh, that has you know, historic explanation, uh, but uh, nobody thinks that it actually makes sense or certainly is ethically defensible that... Um, local communities are mostly responsible for the funding of their schools, which means that poorer communities end up having less money to spend on their schools, in part because of the things that Bill mentioned, that they also have to cover you know, other municipal costs. And in poor communities, there are more demands on the public budget. You need more social workers. You need more police officers. You need more, um, you know, programs to help people access low-cost uh, health care. You know, all, all sorts of things, right? So the needs are greater. The resources are further. Schools are further strapped. And uh, these are the children who are most in need of high-quality uh, public education and where the schools and the school system is um, even more responsible than in wealthier communities for ensuring that children get a well-rounded education. You know, in the wealthier communities, the parents may well be paying for uh, separate sports teams for music lessons for you know summer camp et cetera, whereas in the poorer communities that also uh, needs to be provided through the public school budget so it 's this crazy thing where the highest needs kids and families actually have the least um, access to the resources that they need to be on uh, an equal playing field in order to achieve the goals that again we all have for our children um, and so and you know 
funding like this does not happen in any other country. We are the only country in the world uh, that has this kind of funding formula. So at this point, I'd like... When you ask, you know, what should we do, I think that one of the things, you know, certainly one of the themes that has been surrounding uh, the inauguration of President-elect Trump is the extent to which we are going to come together as a nation and see our fate as basically linked up with one another and intertwined, and the extent to which we are going to see each other um, as, as you described it earlier, and sort of others as them, uh, and retreat into these um, bubbles or these uh, sort of self-protected communities where we see ourselves as being in a struggle with other communities for resources or power, and um, that's playing out in our schools as well. Yeah. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Mira Levinson, Professor of Education at Harvard Graduate School of Education, and Bill Richards, Maine educator and former Associate Commissioner of Instruction for Maine. Our topic today is the Civic Mission of Public Education. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer off the air so that um, others can also participate. Don't wait until the last last minute. Get your call in early. Um, So we're talking about disparities in funding and um, rich districts, poor districts, shared responsibility for making sure that all of our our children get a good education. I also want to talk a little bit today about um, not only – oh, it looks like we have a call right away. So it's Martha from Ellsworth. Go ahead, Martha. You're on the air. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to have the expert comment on the effect of the uh, requirement of all this testing for math and reading skills and how that could leave out, you know, take time away from the humanities and civic things that are less harder to test (laughs) in a standardized way. Uh, So, I mean, I firmly believe in a well-rounded education, including um, uh, music, art, civics, physical education, those things are, are important, too. So this, what is the role of the, um, I don't know, all the standardized testing requirements that the schools have in this? Th- thanks, Martha. Go ahead, Bill, you first. Uh, I'm not sure what she's referring to in terms of t- testing. Let me just say this. The, the, uh, performance-based education is... is uh, uh, is something new in Maine, and we're all in the process of building, really uh, revolutionizing uh, the way we deliver education. And so it's based upon uh, standards that came out of the Common Core and uh, Maine learning results. And so it will be uh, a series of benchmarks where students will have to reach uh, (coughs) based upon uh, standards in each content area. So uh, that will start off with uh, math and English language arts and then progress to uh, all of the, the disciplines over time. So that does take some time, and that's an, in, and as we look towards the very immediate future, uh, building a capacity to deliver that at every school uh, school district domain is, uh, is a challenge. Um, so that is an issue. But I think in most school systems, uh, certainly that I'm familiar with, uh, and some of them are primarily in Southern Maine. Now I'll have to admit that. Uh, you know, there's still a commitment to, uh, you know, almost all of the disciplines, and and certainly the arts and humanities are. are uh, in fact, that's that's been a long stay in many of the communities with um, interdisciplinary approaches to uh, educating students. I mean, there certainly has been a perception that I've heard um, that. Uh, no citizen left behind and the emphasis on standardized testing has crowded out some of the um, uh, subject matter that might have been taught earlier. Maybe that's a mistaken perception, but Mira, go ahead, just give a couple sentences on that and then we have another call. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, No Child Left Behind um, definitely in its focus on uh, math and reading and then fully adding in science, um, there is a fair amount of evidence that especially in 
lower-income districts, uh, that there was a shift in resources, and including in time, uh, away from um, the arts, from physical education, and even from history and social studies toward what were, uh, are seen as being the core subjects that are tested. And um, that is something that has concerned many, many people. Thank you. Um, we have another uh, caller, Suzanne from Deer Isle. Go ahead. You're on the air. Thank you. Um, this is a question for Professor Levinson. Uh, has there been a decline in civics education across the country? And if so, have there been studies that show that that correlates to a decline in civic participation? Thanks, Suzanne. Go ahead, Mira. Great. Yeah, really uh, clear and uh, important question. There's definitely been a decline in um, the amount of civic education and the kind of civic education that kids have received across the country over the decades. In the 1950s, uh, kids generally took three civics classes um, when they were in school, including often a class that was called Problems of Democracy. Uh, and they would often study current events all the way through elementary school and middle school. It was then junior high school. Uh, over, We've been hearing a lot in the last couple of years uh, with the presidential election about the uh, culture wars. Over the 1970s and 80s, um, the, the number of civics classes and the kinds of civics classes that really engaged in uh, problem-based inquiry and in really uh, tackling controversial issues declined in part because of concerns over uh, what values uh, schools were teaching, whether or not schools could uh, tackle controversial issues um, in ways that other people trusted. And nowadays, many kids really have just one civics class, which is a uh, one-semester government class in 12th grade, which means that kids who have left school before then don't even uh, get that. Um, so, yeah, there's been a real decline. It is hard to say whether or not um, that is directly causally responsible for um, the changes in civic participation and engagement that we've seen because there's so many factors that go into it. But there is very high-quality evidence showing that good civics education, high-quality civics classes, do improve uh, student civic knowledge, civic skills, civic attitudes, and their engagement. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Mira Levinson, Professor of Education at Harvard Graduate School of Education, and Bill Richards, Maine educator and former Associate Commissioner of Instruction for Maine. We're welcoming your questions or comments on the air. At this time, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. Bill, what about that as it plays out in Maine? Is it possible anymore to teach kids about politics without giving the impression or instilling the concern that you're teaching a political point of view? Are people sort of afraid to teach politics in Maine? I don't think people are necessarily uh, afraid to teach politics or, or, you know, uh, the political process, those kinds of things. But I think that there are some competing uh, elements that make uh, that, that conversation with, with children and that learning experience with children a real challenge because you look at the, uh, and I don't, I don't participate, but I have, uh, you know, you look at Facebook, you look at, um, you know, the, uh, the, the misconstruing of the facts uh, with all the media and everything, and that that's bombarding us almost every day. Every day I, I drive into work and I'm listening to CNN, and that's, you know, obviously this is the, the kids are being exposed to this as well. So putting that up against, um, if, you, if we have to do that, you know, the, uh, the tenets of, of democracy, Democracy uh, becomes a real challenge. It really does, and uh, and and teachers are doing that. But there's a there's some real competition that I think we, as a society, we, we should really take hold and say, hmm, uh, do we really all need all that information out there? And and obviously, you can't muzzle it either. But that's a real real challenge, I think. I, uh, Mary, do you have a view of that? I just. Uh, uh, it, it just puzzles me every day hearing all the mistruths and the, the, how this information is twisted and over and over uh, uh, analyzed, and that's flooding the airwaves. And then you know, trying to teach uh, you know the, the framework of government in a classroom is right. Certainly not yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Um, yeah, so um, Facing History in Ourselves, which is a wonderful organization, um, uh, it has actually a terrific online resource for educators uh, called After Ferguson. Mira, let me just ask you to name that organization one more time. I didn't quite get the name of it. Oh, sorry. Uh, the organization is called Facing History and Ourselves. Thank you. Um, yeah, they are a national and actually international organization that works uh, directly with schools um, and, and teachers in order to um, help educators um, teach uh, about history, but also in relationship to our own identities and how we see ourselves as responsible civic actors. And they have an online resource called After Ferguson, which is specifically about media literacy. They developed it in the aftermath of the um, protests following Michael Brown's uh, death in Ferguson, Missouri, but it's highly applicable today. I'll also say that we, um, in uh, my work on educational ethics, uh, we have a website, justiceinschools.org, and we have just, uh, in honor of Inauguration Day, uh, released three case studies about uh, dilemmas of civic educational ethics. Uh, we have a case study of a uh, 10th grade social studies team trying to decide whether or not uh, to have their students debate a um, registry for um, Muslim immigrants coming from other countries. Uh, and some who are saying, yes, this has been in the news, it's a perfect thing for students to debate, and others uh, saying, no, no, this violates uh, constitutional and democratic uh, principles uh, in favor of freedom of religion, and like this is not something that should be open for debate. We also have a case study of a um, school culture team, which is trying to just figure out how to deal with a rise in... Um, hard language among kids, uh, friendships that have broken down over uh, supporting Trump or not supporting Trump, uh, some first graders who were building a wall out of blocks uh, where they uh, were, you know, sort of excitingly chanted, build the wall, build the wall, and the teacher had to figure out how to deal with it. And then we have a third case study, actually, of Portland, Oregon, um, uh, students who have been uh, staging school walkouts and how the school district there is trying to um, think through both supporting student civic activism, but also making sure that they stay safe and focused on learning and the real ethical challenges um, in sort of this new world that we're entering. And and how much of it, I mean, you Could mentioned... Could I answer that a little bit? Yeah, but I have a question too, so go ahead, Bill. I just, uh, I visited a middle school class the other day, and the teacher was... Uh, had constructed a debate um, among the class, and the question was, should we build a wall? And it was very interesting to watch that and to watch certainly uh, uh, kids, uh, you know, thinking through uh, the issues and, and debating the issues. But, again, I could see a little of that, uh, you know, that uh, that uh, Facebook information kind of creeping in there from time to time. But it was really kind of interesting. So uh, it's a contemporary problem, it's a contemporary issue, and and it's being brought to the forefront in, in good uh, in good discussion in the classroom. So that was a very positive part, aspect of all of this. Um, listeners, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Mira Levinson, Professor of Education at Harvard Graduate School of Education, and Bill Richards, Maine educator and former Associate Commissioner of Instruction for Maine. We're taking your questions or comments. At this time, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. I did want to follow up um, a little bit between Mira and Bill uh, you know, Mira's earlier comment about how civics education had been conducted in the 50s, going down into upper grade school, middle school, junior high, high school, current events, and um, relating to technical literacy, Facebook, social media literacy, critical thinking about news sources. How how does that work in Maine now? Are, are those kinds of skills being taught that early in Maine schools today, Bill? Well, I think it depends upon the community and depends upon the school. Certainly there is a, um, you know, the Maine legislature uh, is responsible for dividing the uh, the curriculum areas. And then from that, 
you know, each school district builds uh, the specificity on, you know, with respect to the curriculum. So, uh, you know, certainly I think that in many districts, uh, the contemporary politics or the contemporary uh, applications of government are brought into the classroom every day, uh, or certainly on a regular basis. Uh, I'm not sure about the, uh, you know, some of our, uh, some of the districts that we were talking about uh, earlier, uh, mm-hmm. whether that happens in some of the more rural, remote areas of the state where so they don't have the, the resources or the, or the skills. Uh, I'll be very frank, uh, skills uh, that are necessary on the part of the faculty. Yep. We have another caller, Margaret from Orland. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I'm interested in this program. I was passionate about education in years past. I'm I'm 84 now and have 15 grandchildren. And Good for you. Congratulations. And one great-grandchild who was on the way for another. Uh, anyway, um, but, but I've, I've struggled with my own children about, uh, you know, whether I should send them to school here or there, living in New York City and other places in the country. Um, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Um, but anyway, I uh, ultimately ended up with my youngest child by homeschooling her, and she's now 48 years old. So I was, I think, the first one in New England to do it legally. Um, But uh, reluctantly I did that uh, because I do uh, believe in the democratization of uh, public schools. But I found them to be so lacking. If I lived in a community that was not affluent because I felt it was important to be integrated there, and then found the school so poor. Um, So I was driven in that direction. But um, jumping to the present discussion about, um, you know, whether they should talk about uh, issues in the school uh, and teach children, you know, to be better citizens by actually debating about issues that might be considered um, controversial, it seems to me that the broader issue here is uh, teaching children how to discern fact from fiction. Uh, and I've heard of some very good programs. I don't, unfortunately, remember the details. Uh, uh, teaching children by discussion, looking at advertisements. I mean, we, we need to teach children how to discern what's really going on when the ad comes on and says, you have to have this, it's just going to solve all your problems. It's an excellent point. And so the same issue is there in the political debate. So So I think in that larger umbrella, it could be inserted in the school. Can um, I jump in on this? Please do, Um, Mira. Go ahead. There's a a really interesting and disturbing study that just came out from the Stanford History Education Group um, a week or two ago, where they did a um, a fascinating uh, uh, study of thousands of kids looking simply at their capacity when they were looking at web pages to distinguish between actual news items, advertisements, and um, sponsored articles. So, you know, this sort of squishy now uh, mid-ground where so many media outlets, uh, you know, have their own journalists who are doing real news. There are then uh, things that we think of as obviously advertisements. Um, But then there are these sponsored articles that are made to look like uh, news but are in fact paid for, uh, you know, not by the journalistic organization themselves. And it was really uh, depressing to see how hard it was for... um, uh, kids of all levels, including college students, to distinguish even among things that counted as advertisements versus not, then yeah. let alone in order to identify how um, the things that they were reading might be uh, biased or skewed in certain ways. Wow. Um, we have another caller, Don, from Deer Isle. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was wondering if there's any such thing as hands-on civics lessons for uh, school students as opposed to sort of studying the abstract concepts, et cetera. And if there is, how does how does that work? What would be some examples of how that would work? Are you thinking of like civics learning? I mean, uh, service yeah, learning, I, I, Don? Yeah, go ahead. 
And I, I think I it's some examples, and I'm sure that, Bill, have... you have some wonderful examples from the districts you've been in. Um, so, yeah, there's a, actually a significant movement in favor of what's uh, right now being called action civics. Uh, and this is the idea that um, just as we have kids, say, doing math in math, they're not just reading about math or learning about other people doing math, but, of course, they do math uh, in order to learn how to write. They write in order to play ba learn how to play baseball. They play baseball instead of, you know, just reading about other people playing baseball. Similarly, Don, as you point out, in order to help kids uh, be good citizens, they actually need to practice doing citizenship and not just learning about other people as citizens. And so... Does there's that happen in... I'm oh, sorry, Mira. Go ahead. Finish. I'm going to say there's a strong action civics movement nationally uh, that has kids doing everything from uh, sort of simulations, you know, debates, uh, mock elections, et cetera, to, in fact, a very active work in the community where they may identify a community problem, do research, uh, talk to... Uh, allies in the community who are already trying to address the problem. They may then develop proposals, uh, do presentations to the city council, write letters to the mayor, work with you know the water board, whatever it is. And kids have uh, done remarkable things to improve their community through engaging in direct civic action. Well, and of course, some of the examples that you talked were learning civil discourse by doing, you know, having those conversations in the classroom. But um, Bill, how much of that kind of learning by doing goes on in Maine schools? I think I think uh, I think there's a lot of examples of that. I think that there is a uh, social studies uh, association in Maine that is really uh, contemporary and it keeps up to date with uh, what's happening uh, with not only research but uh, you know the, the best approaches to uh, delivering not only social studies but certainly and certainly uh, civics education is, is part of that so I think I think there are uh, there's information out there for teachers it's just uh, uh, teachers being encouraged to do that kind of personal study I think it looks like we're it's gonna oh, go ahead Mira. So I was going to say, um, you know, one of the concerns, this sort of goes back to the issue of teaching controversial issues, teachers may be nervous that when they have students engaging in um, direct civic participation, that it may be seen as being partisan, that they're, you know, inserting themselves. And it's important to realize that uh, teachers can open up spaces for students to identify issues that they care about and to learn about them and do work on them without then, you know, the teacher herself or himself uh, being partisan. And so I, I think that's a really important skill for teachers to learn and yep. for principals to support teachers on. We have one more call. This is probably going to be our last caller. Susan from Southwest Harbor, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi there. Yes, thank you for this program. Um, I have two questions. One has to do with how did public education and teachers become the whipping boy, girl, for, I would say, people who are angry about a lot of things politically, I guess. And secondly, um, how do we inform people, as this program did at the beginning of the show, inform people about what the function, one of the many functions of public education, why public education is so important? Um, and uh, working with all sorts of people, learning to work together, um, and also the issue of private schools don't have to take everyone, charter schools don't have to take everyone, public schools are truly for everyone. So those are two questions. I know you don't have much time. Anyway, thank you. Thanks for the show. Thanks for Susan. Very quickly, which one of you would like to answer Susan's two questions? I would just uh, I'd like to make one comment, uh, and that um, uh, I think the boards of education and superintendents in particular need to um, have as part of their responsibility uh, a public information system where uh, the education isn't confined to uh, just children in classrooms, it's also for the greater community. I'm beginning to see that the more that you do that, the more success, more acceptance, and the more understanding in the community with respect to what you're trying to accomplish uh, with uh, educating children. So uh, there is a role, and I think that uh, for his, in some some respects, historically, we've kind of uh, 
been self-contained, and I think what we need to do is to uh, spend more time looking at uh, how we uh, explain what we're doing to the greater public. Mira? Uh, I would agree with the caller um, that uh, schools and teachers have become um, the object of a lot of derision and suspicion, which is odd because when you talk to people about their own uh, schools and their own children's teachers, they're generally very, very positive. And so if we could change the narrative where we see that the the experience you have as an individual family or child with your own, you know, children's school is actually fairly generalized uh, and start to think of ourselves as partners with educators, uh, I think we could achieve a lot more. We are running out of time this morning, so I want to give you each just a few seconds to offer any parting thoughts and especially a hopeful comment what we can do to improve um, civic education in our communities. And I'll ask you first, Bill, just very quickly. Well, I guess what I'd like to, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for giving me uh, the opportunity to um, meet Mira over the phone as well as Joanne and, and having uh, the opportunity to share a little bit. Uh, I think one of the one of the very positive things about public education and about education in general is that it's something I see every day in the school near my office. There are uh, the kindergarten, the K through three children come through the uh, the door, and and they are bright and ready to learn and. Um, there's a real positiveness about their lives at this point. Thanks, and Bill. Uh, oh, sorry. Mira, parting shots. We we're re- really at running out of time here. Got to wrap it oh, up. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. Sure. Yeah, so I'll, we- I'll say that um, oddly, a hopeful thing is that uh, we have many, many, many people who are civically engaged and energized now um, with our new president. Uh, who have potentially been less engaged in the past. So it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out over the next four years. And I think that kids can be at the forefront of that. Go ahead, Bill. I know you had one more thing to say. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just saying that uh, uh, I, I see the future in a positive way, and I think that education will contribute greatly to that. And, um, well, I would would suggest that if you haven't uh, read uh, Hillbilly Elegy, I think that says a lot about where we are today, at least part of our society. And, and I think there's some really interesting information there for uh, the citizenry as we look at not only education but the rest of our world. Okay, we really are out of time now. Thank you to our guests this morning. Great show. Mira Levinson, Professor of Education at Harvard Graduate School of Education, and Bill Richards, Maine Educator and former Associate Commissioner of Instruction for Maine. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to John Greenman, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org. For more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series, visit our website or email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll see you here next month at this time when our topic will be the ballot questions in Maine. Whose initiatives are they anyway? Thank you. A few seconds before we need to go uh, to the break, let's take a quick look at the weather tonight. Uh, Mostly cloudy with a low around 25. Calm winds. Saturday, partly sunny with a high near 40. Light and variable winds becoming southwest around 5 miles an hour. Saturday night, mostly cloudy with a low around 28. North winds 3 to 6 miles an hour. Stay tuned for On the Wing. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Waterfront Concerts presenting Lewis Black at the Collins Center for the Arts in Orono on Thursday, February 2nd, 2017. Waterfrontconcerts.com or 1-800-745-3000. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Rupert Spira, author of Presence Volumes 1 and 2. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about our true nature of open, empty awareness. Sunday morning at 10. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the 1932 Criterion Theater, a nonprofit cinema, theater, multimedia art producer, and venue for stories, storytellers, and audiences in downtown Bar Harbor, 288. 0829 or criteriontheater.org.